Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verse 17. Uh, start with that and then we'll let the Holy Ghost take us where he wants us to go. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Now, he goes on and says in verse 18 that all things that have become new are things of God. So we know specifically he's talking about being born again. When we're born again, the Bible tells us that we become part of the family of God. Over and over and over again, the Holy Ghost inspires different writers to say that because we are in Christ, it's the same as being in the family of God. It's the same as taking the position that Jesus has with the Father now. Turn with me now to uh, Romans chapter 6. I want to take a few minutes and build my case here, and then we'll have a good launching pad. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized unto his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now, the baptism he's talking about here is not water baptism. This is what water baptism uh, refers to. Or it's, it's a, water baptism is a physical sign for something's happened in your heart. But when he's talking about being baptized into Christ, he means being immersed in the family of God. Not just talking about water. Water is an outward sign, but that's all it is. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, spiritual death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if, since, we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, anytime you find a place in the Bible that is contingent on something that you know, like in James chapter 1 where it says, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. If you don't know that, then you're not going to be able to, to let patience have a perfect work. You're not going to be able to walk through the, the fight of faith in the way that God wants you to. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that henceforth we should not serve sin, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon you yourselves also to be dead indeed to Christ, uh, dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about... um, there are 63 times in the, in the epistles, the letters written to the church, where the Bible identifies us as being in Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Jesus made himself of no reputation and came to the earth as a man. The, uh, the translation there, those words literally mean, uh, the words that are translated made himself of no reputation, literally means he stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory. He laid that aside and came to earth as a man. Jesus' whole purpose for coming to the earth was to identify with mankind. That's why he refers to himself in the four gospels, the records we have in the four gospels. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man 60 times. 
Only five times does he refer to himself as the Son of God. And I believe John just, uh, three of those five times are in the same setting. And all five of those times where Jesus called himself the Son of God are in the Gospel of John. It's almost as if John comes back. We know it was the last one that was written, the last letter that was written. Comes back and fills in the blanks for some of us. uh, Fills in some of the blanks for us. By telling us some things that the other writers don't give us. And there is never in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Inspired by the Holy Ghost to be written in the way that they were. There's not one time where Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he was trying to hide the fact. It was no secret. It wasn't a mystery. The angels foretold that the Son of God would be born into the earth. And there were times, there was one time at least, where Jesus was questioned and somebody asked him, are you the Son of God? And Jesus turned it around and said, well, you say that I am. But he didn't identify himself, rarely did he identify himself as the Son of God, because he was here on the earth to identify with you and me. If he went around talking about or telling people that he was the Son of God, that would have identified him with God and not man. Now, again, Jesus didn't try to hide the fact of who he was. He wasn't trying to keep it secret by any means. He wanted people to come to their own conclusions, just like Peter did when he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter wound up saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded to him and said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, I would have thought that the miracles that Peter had witnessed would be enough to tell him or convince him. Yet Jesus said that it was revelation from God the Father. He didn't say it was the miracles. He didn't say it was the power that he showed or the miraculous power that he operated in. He said it was revelation from God. So Jesus identified with man from the time that he was born. But we didn't identify with him until he went to the cross. In Christ is the legal side of your relationship with God. It means that when Jesus was threatened, was beaten, excuse me, in Pilate's court, we were there and being beaten in proxy in the same way that Jesus was. It means when Jesus was nailed to the cross, we were nailed to the cross too. Because he's dying as our substitute, taking the penalty and the punishment that should have been ours because we were spiritually dead. And so everything that Jesus experienced, all the beatings, all the punishment, the three days and three three nights in the belly of the earth, the lower part of hell, Since he did it for you, it was the same as you and me being there. So we identify with him in his death, but we also identify with him, identify with him in his resurrection. And that's what Romans chapter 6 introduces, the idea that it introduces to us. Since we were buried by baptism into his death, that just means by making him our Lord and Savior, accepting the sacrifice and the work that he paid for our sakes, it says that we also are raised with him And seated at the right hand of God. Now there are. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Being in Christ as I said is the legal side of redemption. It means everything that Jesus did for you. Or in our stead. It was the same as you paying the price too. Let's start reading in verse. 
Uh, let's re- start reading verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. It said, But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. It means we're identified with him in the same manner that he has life, we have life. In the same manner that he's been raised to see and seated at the right hand of God the Father, that's where you and I are. We are identified totally and completely with him. So he's raised us up together. And made us sit together with Jesus in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We know that's at the right hand of the Father. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Being in Christ Jesus is the legal side. It means everything that Jesus obtained, we identify with him. What he gained, we gained. When he took the keys of hell and death from Satan, that's the same as you and I taking it or taking them. Not because of who we are, not because of anything we've done, but because we're identified with him. But then notice that he says also about our relationship with Christ. It says we're his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Let me talk to you about that a little bit. If everything Jesus did, he did as our substitute. I'm talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, everything associated with that. When Jesus was raised from the dead and he took his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies, you remember he appeared first unto Martha, I'm sorry, unto Mary, and said, don't touch me, I haven't yet ascended to my father in John chapter 20. When he went into the throne room of God and presented his blood, it was the same as you and I doing it too. He did it for us. He did it for us. And as a result, the Bible says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's another one of those in him or in Christ scriptures. We were made the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you think about being made righteous... If you think back to the time where you were born again, how perfect was that work of righteousness in us? Did it cover every sin? Well, cover is really an Old Testament term. Did it deal with every sin? Did it remit or remove every sin? Or were there still some that were hanging on? The Bible says God has remitted our sins and separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. So it was a perfect work. Salvation, being made righteous, and I'm using those terms interchangeably. Salvation or being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus was a perfect work. Perfect work. But notice the Bible talks to those that have been born again, just like you and I have. And it says we are his workmanship. That does not mean that we were made righteous and it was a perfect salvation until we then messed it up sometime later down the road. See, we're in Christ, which means we legally have everything Jesus obtained for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. But you're also his workmanship. Here's a point where I think a lot of people get mixed up. And that is, 
we have the idea, and, and you can support it to a certain degree with scriptures. But if you come away with the idea that you're on your own trying to work things out, then that makes you your work, that makes you the workmanship of your actions and your deeds. Where the Bible says that we are his workmanship. His workmanship. We are his workmanship. Legally in Christ, everything Jesus obtained, he obtained it on our behalf or for us. But you are his workmanship. The language, the, the, uh, the Greek language here literally is telling us that it's God that's at work in you. God is working in you every day of your life. We sometimes have the idea or think that it's us that's trying to uh, resist sin. It's us that's trying to do good things. It's us that's trying to live right and avoid all temptation and so forth. But the Bible says you're God's workmanship. It means you're his work. Paul went so far in Galatians chapter 2 to identify with this workmanship Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. There he is in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Notice verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, the law was certainly the law of Moses, and you know the the situation that Paul was dealing with in nearly every town that he went to, where there were Jews that would take the position that accepting Jesus is fine, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. And Paul had a constant fight throughout his earthly ministry. He had a constant fight Against that idea, against that notion. Because he understood, he came to the understanding, he had the revelation that Jesus fulfilled the law. So whereas being in Christ would make us want to do the things that the law would direct, it's not the keeping of the law in itself that gives us any standing with God whatsoever. And notice how he said it. He said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. I don't frustrate the grace of God. See, if Paul had taken on himself the way that a lot of Christians do, many Christians in the modern day, if Paul had taken upon himself the attitude or the understanding or the attempt to just do good things so that God would see him in a better light, then that would have done away completely with the grace of God, which says it's not about you, it's not because of you, it's because of what Jesus did. Let me go so far as to say it this way. Christ can't live in you. That doesn't mean you're not born again. But Christ cannot live in the believer's heart if the believer is trying to work his way out toward God for himself. Then what does that tell us about works? Well, most of us, well, maybe... Let me change the terminology a little bit. Paul talks a lot about works relative to the law. We don't have the law to deal with. So we consider things more in the, in the, along the avenue or in the vein of sin. If Paul is telling us that frustrating the grace of God is trying to do it yourself, 
than you trying to take responsibility for your own sin, the sin in the flesh, does the same work of frustrating the grace of God. You are his workmanship. He's at work in you every day. He's working things out for you. Yeah, but what if we miss it? Does that mean God's behind that? No, it means we're still his workmanship, though. We have the idea. I struggle with this big time. I came up in a, in a church that was heavy on do's and don'ts. And I've, um, I spent most of my young life trying to overcome condemnation, trying to overcome the feeling or the, well, yeah, it is a feeling that I wasn't right before God. Now, I didn't know anything about being made the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. And that is certainly a, the foundation stone for overcoming the sense of guilt and condemnation when you come before the Lord. But it's just hard to do any good when it comes to sinning when you're conscious of his indwelling presence. Being conscious of the presence of God on the inside of you makes you a lousy sinner. It just does. But how many people are conscious of the indwelling presence of God? Paul goes further than just saying we're in Christ. He goes further than saying what Jesus did for us was the same as us doing it too. He died a death for us. But because we're in him, when we make him the Lord of our lives, because we're in him, everything that he accomplished in that death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, was for us. It was on our behalf. But that's the point where, we, where most people, it seems, stop thinking about God working in them or for them. Yet the Bible says we are his workmanship. Let me show it to you in a different place. Look with me over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I'll start in verse 12. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice that phrase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the guy that tells us that keeping the law doesn't do any good. So he's certainly not going to impose upon us a new set of rules and regulations, is he? He's already told us that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. So what is he talking about here? Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, the Bible tells us to add experience to our faith. And after we add experience, then we'll come to knowledge. In other words, that means stand, stand your ground, fight the good fight of faith. Which brings knowledge of how the fight of faith, the good fight of faith works. It brings to us a knowledge, an experiential knowledge of how to defeat the devil on every hand. So when he's talking about working out your own salvation, is he talking about only doing good things? Is he talking about trying to get a better place with God by doing right rather than doing wrong? He can't be doing that. Let's read it again. The last part of the verse says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, because for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. For it's God that works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God that's working in you. It's God that's working in you. 
You are his workmanship. You're not your own. Paul tells us about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Ghost. He says you both your body and your spirit are bought, are bought with a price. He's trying to get us to be conscious of the indwelling presence of God. He's trying to get us conscious of the fact that it's God that's working in us. Paul said that to such a degree that, uh, well, here, even writing to the Philippians, in chapter 1, he talks about to live as Christ and to die as gain. He came to the understanding, and he doesn't have a better salvation than you or I. He came to the understanding that everything that he did was the fulfilling of God's original plan, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is that we're supposed to hope in? What is it that Christ in us is the hope of? Well, it's the hope of glory, the hope of coming to the place where we look just like Jesus in the world, defeating the devil on every hand just like Jesus did. But how in the world are we going to get there? If that's dependent on you and me, overcoming sin in some kind of, some measure, through our flesh, then where's the grace of God? Where's the workmanship of Christ Jesus in us? You've got a legal side to being in Christ Jesus. And I think we know more about that than, uh, than the other side. But the other side is, he's working in you. He's working in you. Let me show you another scripture, John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John uh, is beginning his, his uh, gospel account, talking about Jesus being into the world. We'll start in verse 10. He said, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Notice verse 12. He said, but as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He gave us power to become the sons of God. Now, remember where we started with this. There are 63 times where the Bible talks about in Christ, and every one of those has something to do with, with the price that Jesus paid for us, some aspect of redemption. But Jesus called himself 60 times in the, in the four Gospels, 60 out of 65 times, he calls himself the Son of Man. Why did he do that? It seems like that would have been backwards. It seems like Jesus should have put more emphasis on being the son of God than he did on the son of man. But if that were the case, he wouldn't have been able to identify with us. You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus under a cloud of darkness, came to him by night so nobody would see where he was going. And he said, good master, we know you must come from God because no man can do these miracles you do. What did Jesus turn around and tell him? He talked about being born again. He talked about Nicodemus and all of mankind coming into the family of God, becoming sons of God. Now, notice where Nicodemus is going with this. He's saying, I'm wild with the power, the miracles and the healings and all the other things that you've done. And that makes me know that you have to become from God because no man can do that stuff without God being with him. 
And Jesus immediately turns around and starts talking to him about being born again. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I believe Jesus is identifying those miracles that Nicodemus is referring to as a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't stop there and say, yeah, you haven't come to this understanding yet. You'll get it before it's over. But this is because I am the son of God. That's what Nicodemus said. That's the attachment that Nicodemus put on it. He said, you've got to be the son of God because nobody can do this stuff other than the son of God. Then Jesus turned around on him. He said, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's telling him the key is to become the son of God, not to leave the earth, but to become sons of God here now. If Jesus had emphasized who he was as the son of God rather than the son of man, then nobody would have ever thought that they could have done the same things that he did. That's the problem we've got in the modern day church as it is, isn't it? Most of the modern day church says that the reason the church doesn't do the present day church doesn't do the miracles that Jesus did, nor should we expect to, they say, because Jesus was the son of God. He did that stuff because he was the son of God. Well, then why didn't Jesus call himself that? Why did he leave that up to people to decide for themselves and come to the revelation on their own? Well, the answer to that is very simple. And that is, if Jesus had identified himself only as the son of God, then we would never have come to a place where we would have thought we could do the same works as Jesus. Yet that's what Jesus, uh, the father's plan was all along. For us to be in Christ, legal position, legal rights, Based on what Jesus did for us. But then to go further than that. And to understand that the authority given unto man. Who has now joined himself with Jesus as a joint heir. Who's now come into the family of God. Jesus said we could do the same works as he did. I want you to look with me at two openings. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, first of all. John's writing to the churches before he gets into the vision that he had of the end times and the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. Notice that, the first begotten of the dead and the prince of kings, prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Please notice that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. The first begotten from the dead. What does that mean? What death was he the first begotten from? Can't be physical death because Jesus was not the first person that was raised from physical death. Lazarus was raised from physical death. The young boy in the, um, that was Jesus walked in upon the funeral procession for, he just touched the casket and gave him back to his He revived, the young boy revived, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. He was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. There's accounts in the Old Testament, a couple of accounts in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead too. So Jesus could not have been the first begotten from physical death, natural death. He could not have been. So what death is it talking about? Well, there's only only one other kind of death, and that's spiritual death. Well, if Jesus was the first begotten from spiritual death, then that means he had to die spiritually. There's no way you can be born from spiritual death unless you enter into spiritual death. 
And it says that Jesus was the firstborn or first begotten from the dead. Let me show you another scripture along this same line. Paul's going to be the one that tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, For whom he, God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, firstborn from what? Again, it can't be physical death. He's got to be talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death. Firstborn, first begotten from the dead. Do you know what that means? That means when Jesus became sin and the exchange started being made, he became sin so that we could become his righteousness. When that exchange began to be played, when that exchange began to happen, there came a point in time after Jesus in the lower parts of the earth, experiencing all the, the suffering and the tragedy and all the things that the Bible tells us about. It doesn't tell us a lot, but there are some places where we can get a, a hint of what he experienced. When Jesus died the death of the unrighteous man, and he was paying for all of mankind's sins. Now, I don't know how this all worked. I, I, I really don't know how to think correctly or build a picture in my mind about how all this stuff works. But I do know that Jesus had to uh, endure for three days and nights enough of pain and suffering to where he lost the ability to do anything about it himself. When he was hanging on the cross, the last thing he said was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That means he laid, that completed the process of laying down his life for you and me and coming to the place where he was totally dependent on God doing something for him because in subjecting himself to spiritual death, he had no ability to come out on his own. But when the price was paid, when the moment of time occurred where sufficient to satisfy the claims of justice, sufficient punishment to satisfy the claims of justice took place, the Bible says God raised him from the dead. That's what this is talking about. He was the firstborn. He was the first begotten from the spiritual death that he took upon himself as your substitute and mine. That means... That you've got the same new birth experience that Jesus does. That has to be true. We have the same new birth experience. We have the same experience of being raised up. And seated at the right hand of God the Father. It says when the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. That when Jesus was quickened. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 3.18 Peter says that he was made alive in spirit. When he paid the price, Jesus was born again in the belly of the earth. Stripped Satan of the keys of hell and death. Presented himself as a worthy sacrifice in the heavenly holy of holies. And then sat down at the right hand of God. That's where the Bible says you and I are. When God quickened him, he quickened you too. When God raised him, he raised you too. When God set him at his right hand, he set you there too. 
He was the firstborn, the first begotten of many brethren. That's why the Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ. He doesn't have a better new birth experience than you do. He doesn't have a better resurrection than you do. He doesn't have a better position with God than you do. Because we were identified with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And the Bible says that that makes us his workmanship. We look at ourselves in the mirror or look at the things that we've done and the failures that we've experienced and the the countless times that we've fallen into temptation or whatever it might be. We look at those things and think that we're defective in some way or another. But how can the workmanship of God be defective? How is it possible? Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand how many times I've fallen. You don't understand how many times I've disappointed my father. I might. We all experience the same life here on the earth. It might be that it's the same for you as it is for me. Yet the Bible still says, God knowing what was going to take place, God knowing that there would be people that were hot or cold and even people that were lukewarm toward him. Yet we're still his workmanship. We're still his workmanship. We still have the life of God on the inside of us. Paul makes a, a, a tremendous distinction between himself and his flesh when he talks about his own struggles. He says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 22, I delight after, in the law of God after the inward man. He's telling us and goes into great detail about how he has to keep his flesh under. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. He didn't call his body himself. He is the real man on the inside, the spirit man that's been recreated at the new birth. He says the real him, the man on the inside, keeps his body under, brings it under subjection. He calls his body it. He says, I, the man on the inside, do something about my body. I do something about it. And when Paul comes to the realization that even in the midst of his struggle, he talks about him from his heart, he wants to do the right thing, but his flesh leads him in a different direction. That sounds a lot like me. Doesn't it sound like you too? He talks about wanting to do right from the inside, from his heart, from his spirit. The man that was recreated in the image of God. But he says, I catch myself, my body doing a lot of things that my heart resents. Who's going to deliver me from this bondage? He says, I thank my God, Jesus Christ is the one who delivers me. So he comes to the realization. Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. He comes to the realization that the sin that he stumbles into is not sufficient to keep him from being the workmanship of God. He comes to the realization in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. He says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There's that in Christ phrase again. Last part of the verse says who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That belongs in verse 4. I don't know what the reason is. Why the translators pull that phrase up from verse 4. 
and put it in verse 1, the only thing that I can, can surmise or the best speculation I can make is that verse 1 was too good for them to believe. If they were conscious like so many are in the body of Christ of their failures to do the good works that they think they're supposed to do or that they want to do from their heart. They must have expected there to be some kind of condemnation attached to it. But Paul says there's not. No matter how many times you've missed it. No matter how big the times you missed it were. Whether it was small or whether it was great. Whether it was something you made a wrong choice. Or stumbled unto temptation inadvertently. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus. That means no matter what you've done. Or how many times you've done it. God doesn't condemn you. For what you did. We're always going to struggle with our flesh. There's always going to be a struggle. A conflict between what our spirit wants to do according to the word of God and what our flesh falls into doing. But in the middle of talking about that conflict, Paul says, God doesn't condemn me for the wrong that I've done. God doesn't condemn me because I'm in Christ. God only sees me in Christ Jesus. He only sees me the perfect new creation, the perfect righteousness of God, no matter how many times I've messed up. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How come? Because you're his workmanship. You're his workmanship. You're still under construction, but it's God who's doing the constructing. God doesn't work with condemned individuals. He changes them. He makes them new creatures. He makes them a new species of being, one translation says. And you always will be. No matter what you do. I don't want to focus on wrongdoings. I know a lot of people say, you mean it doesn't matter what I do? There's still going to be no condemnation? Well, that's what the Bible says. You mean I can start living the way that I used to live? Yeah, you can. Don't know why you'd want to. But the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there is no condemnation for them that do right and only do right. The doing right that qualifies you in this situation is making Jesus your Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. When you come to understand that you are his workmanship. That means in one sense at least. That you're working side by side with God. He's the contractor, you're the helper. He's the one responsible for the workmanship. 
you're the one responsible to follow his lead. I, uh, I spent some summers when I was in high school working on building houses, and I worked with a plumber one year. I worked with a, a framing carpenter one, one year. I worked with a, a waterproofer one year. I've had several jobs in, throughout my life as a teenager in the constructing business. And every case, I was responsible for being the runner. Whatever the guy, whatever the carpenter told me to get, I went and got it. Whatever the plumber told me to get, I went and got it. He used the contractor. He's the one responsible for the finished product. But I'm the runner. And that's exactly what the Bible talks about you and I are in relationship with God when it comes to presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Paul writes to the church and says, since we've made, been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, he said, don't yield your members, don't yield your body to sin. Make it a servant of God, which means become the runner. God's responsible for telling you what to do. God's responsible for the direction that your life is to take. We just simply wait for his direction and go do it. That makes us his workmanship. That makes us his workmanship. When we present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, that just simply means we're ready and willing to do whatever God directs us to do. I think there's a lot of things that are going to work differently in heaven than we think they will. I've had enough experience working with people and praying for people to realize that some of the things that I saw them do that I thought was wrong God didn't hold against them because he was looking on their heart. It's easy for us to judge behavior. We can judge behavior in ourselves and we can sure judge it in other people. But God doesn't look on the behavior. God doesn't look on just the results. He looks at people's hearts. And there have been a number of times where I've prayed for somebody and asked God to forgive them from something. Something I knew was wrong. Something they should have known was wrong. And the Lord has directed me not, there's no need to pray about that or in that way. Because he was looking on their heart, they meant to do the right thing when they did the wrong thing instead. I think that goes back to our lack of understanding perhaps. Thinking God's a hard taskmaster. He's waiting to catch us doing something wrong. And that's not who God is at all. He's not waiting to catch us doing something wrong. He's already taken care of the doing something wrong in Jesus. He's looking for us to come to the understanding of the right standing we have, the right relationship, the right position we have with him as a loving heavenly father. The Bible says it's the love of God that leads to repentance. When we understand how much he's on our side, then we start tapping into the workmanship part. We start tapping into the part that God is, what God is doing for us, for our benefit. And that's when it becomes easy to overcome the habits or the sins of the past when we know he's with us and for us and on our side. You are his workmanship. You are in him. And that provides you legal standing 
That provides you everything you're ever going to need to overcome the work of the devil against you. But maybe even more importantly, you're his workmanship. Every day you, you live here on the earth. It's Christ living through you. That's the way he sees it. That's the way we ought to see it too. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Not only made righteous by the blood of Jesus, but we become your workmanship. We thank you for the work that you're doing in us, teaching us, leading us, guiding us. We thank you, Father, that even as your word says, we are sons of God now. And your word tells us that as sons of God, we have a right and a responsibility to be led by the Holy Ghost. Lead us into your plan and purpose for our lives. Lead us into an understanding. You said, Father, that the Holy Ghost is a teacher. He's a guide. Holy Spirit, guide us into the love of God. Guide us to an understanding of how God sees us now, right now, in this place in life. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what it means to have Christ living in us. Teach us what it means for the fulfillment of God's plan. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be your workmanship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beth, I'm supposed to call on you for something?